This is Alex Pearson. And again, when Palestinians got together to take up the street, it was Palestinian organizers that were targeted by the Hamilton police. That were ticketed. That were, there was a mother who was friends with a rest who didn't speak English. Over and over and over again, the Hamilton police protect Nazism in our city and continue to target black Muslims, Palestinians. There you go, Hamilton. That is your NDP candidate. Some saying, why is that the candidate? Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, March 15th. Yeah, here we go. Midway through the big March break break. Going quickly. Lots to get through today. Peter McKay is going to join me at the 10 o'clock hour. He's penned up something about um, justice in the country and the activist role. I didn't say activist. I will. Uh, judges at our upper courts, the decisions they make, the impact they are having. So we're going to talk about that. I'll get his reaction to uh, China crisis, the China crisis, uh, where he sees that going. So we've got uh, lots coming up on the show today. But uh, let's kick things off um, when it comes to the issue of hate in this country. Because we seem to be very, very selective with our outrage. You know, on the right, it gets condemned. And on the left, it gets met with a shrug. And you need to look no further then the city of Hamilton, where the NDP candidate for Andrea Horvath's old riding finds herself embroiled in a number of accusations that she's got this long track record of anti-Semitic and radical views. And when asked to even defend past comments, Sarah Jammer herself admits, and, and, and this was just like in the last week, that she's got a messy history of anti-racism. End quote. She said that. She's got a messy history with anti-racism. Oh. Clearly, it's not messy enough for the NDP, which uh, handed Jama the candidacy completely unchallenged and are standing behind this candidate, despite several Jewish groups raising concerns about her comments, which would include uh, calling Israel illegitimate, suggestions that the Jewish state's funding murder locally and globally. You heard off the top of the show these claims that Hamilton police uh, protect Nazis and target black Muslims and Palestinians. Um, and we'll say dog whistles like, uh, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestinian will be free, which is another way of saying wipe Israel from the map, which would also include the Jews that live there. If you want to erase uh, Israel from the map, that, that means the Jews go. Um, there's a 2021 20, video where Jama speaks, um, you know, about the Hamilton police protecting Nazism. And she also is a, a staunch supporter of BDS, which is anti-Semitic. Uh, it's been condemned by both conservatives and liberals. It's very popular on the left, though. And it's not that Gemma criticizes Israel that makes her views anti-Semitic. I mean, Jews in Israel criticize their home state. They support Palestinian rights. Not, it's not wrong to criticize Israel. It's perfectly fine. It becomes anti-Semitic. When you isolate the Jewish state and demonize it for the very kinds of issues that you give other countries a pass on. Or, or when you single out Israel and call for its destruction because what you are calling for is the death of Jews. And Marit Stiles, or Marit Stiles uh, defends this candidate saying that uh, she and her party are against anti-Semitism. They've, they've issued that statement. We're against anti-Semitism. Yet time and again, uh, the NDP seemed to draw it like a moth to fire. I mean, they've had to drop numerous candidates in, in years past because, you know, one of them passed around a Hitler meme. There was another one uh, who didn't even know what uh, the Holocaust was or they outright just denied ever happened. You got um, candidates who named streets in honor of Nazi officers. It's, it's long been an issue. 
Um, you might recall Joel Harden, another staunch BDS supporter, uh, Ottawa NDP MPP. He had to apologize just a couple of months ago after he was caught boasting online how he uh, wears a pro-Palestinian pin while canvassing his neighborhood to see just how the Jews will react. Surprise, I'm here. Like, what? Did, I don't know what he thought they would do. Like, Jews would all of a sudden, like, Dracula just shun from the sunlight. Wow. I mean, it's so crazy. But he outright questioned Jews and his neighbors, you know, how much longer should we put up with the state of Israel? It's so, their, their obsession over Israel is odd to me. It, it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to, like, just stay in your lane. Let Israel worry about its stuff. You don't need to get engaged. But, but he did. And, um, you know, he Paula, he'll do better. And for all the pearl clutching that we get over three conservative MPs standing with far-right leader Christine Anderson, where, where is the outrage for, you know, the numerous examples of Jew hate that we see on the left? I mean, the prime minister gets a pass, uh, certainly got a pass when his government paid Laith Maroof, known Jew, like a career Jew hater, that you got 600 grand to teach Jew hate to uh, broadcasters. It's just like, oh, well, no one got fired, nothing. It's just, oh, well. So Stiles is defending her candidate, saying, you know, she may be around questionable speakers. It doesn't mean they speak for her. I guess she does not subscribe to the, you are the company you keep, right? You know, she says, sometimes she just didn't use the right words. She's just really passionate. <laughs> okay. It's a funny way to be passionate. I mean, you're either against hate or you're not. I mean, there should be no in-between for politicians who tell us all the time, how often do we hear? We have no tolerance for far-right hate. And then it hits their own party, and then somehow it becomes confused passion. Well, they're just passionate. Okay. Maybe the three conservative MPs are just passionate. I don't know. I mean, this should be seen as a test of leadership for Marit Stiles. Uh, and she has chosen her political fortunes over doing what she would demand of her conservative opposition. She has chosen to back a questionable candidate who has very questionable views. And again... Why is there such a double standard? For me, I would just like people to be consistent. It's either okay or it's not. Just be, you know, consistent. You can't sweep stuff like this under the carpet because uh, your side's okay with it. It's all or nothing. But we do have a double standard on this kind, kind of uh, nonsense. And I'm not even sure if uh, Marit Stiles knows, you know, uh, uh, her candidate through and through. I don't think they vetted her. Clearly they didn't vet her. And a lot of the stuff was already scrubbed, but they didn't vet her. Uh, but she, she prides herself as a young communist. She was a part of the Communist League a few years ago and, and even said back then that the NDP wasn't left enough for her. It wasn't radical enough for her. Really? <laughs> and now she's appointed the candidate. So she might be a lot of um, management if she gets into Queen's Park. I mean, this is a NDP safe riding. Uh, Hamilton's got a big Jewish community. But again, uh, it is expected that this candidate will likely win. Um, but again, it, it, it's the, the, the leader of the NDP has been asked several times about this. And we just get the blanket statements. We're against anti-Semitism. We're against anti-Semitism, but only on the right. It's not a right or left issue. It permeates through all. We just don't seem to react to it.
Alex Pearson with you here on 640. And on Thursday, Hamiltonians, you're heading to the polls. And you're going to be electing a new MPP for Hamilton Center, of course, to replace Andrea Horvath. And this uh, NDP stronghold has become a focal point because of the candidate running uh, for the NDP, which is uh, Sarah Jama. And she's been called out for numerous anti-Semitic comments she's made over the years. Some of them include things like saying Israel uh, is illegitimate, that the Jewish state funds murder locally and globally. Um, She's a staunch supporter of the BDS movement, which, of course, seeks to isolate Israel and actively uh, takes part in anti-Israel events. Jemma herself says she has a messy history with anti-racism, yet Marit Stiles is standing by this candidate. And, um, I mean, she calls her views passionate. She's passionate. And um, at the same time, says her party condemns anti-Semitism. So we have all these examples of anti-Semitism, and you say you're against anti-Semitism, and yet we just continually see it. It's called it on the right, it's just not called it on the left. Both equally wrong. Michael Moshin is CEO of B'nai B'rith Canada. He joins us now. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. So your organization... um, is one of the groups that raised concerns about this candidate. And so what was the main concern with her views? Because she she is fairly radical. So, I mean, I, I'm only laying out the simplest things of what she has said. But what is the big concern for people who don't maybe really understand the, the issue? Yeah, thanks, Alex. So uh, that really is our concern that um, we, we just want to see we're first of all, we're a, a nonpartisan organization. We don't support any candidates or against any candidates or for or against any political parties. But we do have issues when candidates come forward with, um, as you mentioned, messy histories in dealing with racism issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the BDS movement is an anti-Semitic movement. Um, this is a movement that may start off with um, uh, talking about, you know, uh, boycott or deal, um, uh, divestment from the state of Israel. But we see the impact of BDS on individual Jews, particularly on university campuses. Mm. The Ontario legislature in 2016 described BDS in a vote as one of the main vehicles for spreading anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel globally and is increasingly promoted on university campuses in Ontario. And it denounced BDS for promoting a climate of hate intimidation, intolerance, and violence against the Jewish people. So when you have a candidate that's promoting an issue like that, who claims to be an anti-racism advocate, and yet hate and Jews are the most targeted uh, religious group for hate in this country, that's a big problem that we have as an organization and that we think um, Ontarians and Canadians in general should have. Well, I mean, we also have very selective outrage because I'll, I'll point out, you know, there's a lot made about Pierre Polyevre's three MPs uh, standing with far-right leader uh, out, of, out of Europe. People freak out about that. And then I kind of point to, like, cases like Joel, Joel Harden uh, of the NDP, you know, a staunch BDS supporter. This is someone who wore his Palestinian pin just to see what Jews would do. You know, he questioned his Jewish neighbors about how much longer we have to put up with the state of Israel, that, that kind of stuff. And then it's just kind of, you know, you apologize and then it's... Um, it's okayed, and then it's shrugged off. So there seems to be very selective outrage, where a guy like Laith Marouf, a career Jew hater, can get hired on the on the government payroll, get paid half a million dollars. Um, that doesn't come with any kind of penalty and or or um, you know explanation. But you know you stand with the wrong uh, far right politician. I mean, we're selective, and I think it's dangerous because hate's not selective. And if if it starts with Jews, it's going to end. It doesn't stop. It starts with the Jews. It just keeps going. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Alex. Uh, you know, we can't be selective. If we're against racism, we should be against all forms of racism. And also, we need to take things into context and see where sometimes there's a pattern of behavior. Um, it's not to say that, you know, politicians don't sometimes make the wrong choices. I mean, Mel Lastman had a famous photo of, you know, shaking yeah. the, the wrong hands. Um, and these sorts of things happen. But when we see patterns of behavior, um, and um, Ms. Stiles has stated that, you know, Ms. Jemma has a history of always standing up against anti-Semitism. That would be wonderful. I'd love to see that. Mm. Uh, the Jewish community would love to see that. Um, support for BDS uh, and saying that you're standing up against anti-Semitism, those two words don't go together. And, and the history as well, and, and we see this in terms of overbreadth, in terms of demonizing groups of people. I mean, she demonized the police, mm. called them Nazis. <laughs> Um, like, and so this is not a one-off behavior. This is what's concerned B'nai B'rith. And, and this is why we, we've raised this issue. We've raised it with the NDP and we've raised the issue publicly. Yeah. And look, there's nothing wrong with fighting for Palestinian rights. I mean, you'll find Jews in Israel who fight for those kinds of rights. And it's also okay to criticize Israel. There's nothing wrong with that. I, albeit it is, seems to be kind of an obsession on the left. But, you know, uh, there's a nuance to it. I mean, when, when you say from the river to the sea, Palestinians will be free. I mean, that, that's a bit of a dog whistle. It's kind of like, or, or you say, you know, isolate the Jewish state or, or get rid of Israel. You're basically saying wipe Jews off, off the map. Um, and so some of it's very nuanced. And I don't think a lot of people know uh, what it is that they're saying. Yeah, agreed. And and this shouldn't be just a zero-sum game. Um, you should be able to stand in solidarity with, with Palestinians and at the same time not have to demonize the state of Israel and not demonize Zionists uh, in Canada. Um, the vast majority of Jews in this country are Zionists. Of course, there's many, many non-Jews uh, who are Zionists as well. But why do we have to demonize individuals because you're purportedly pushing another human rights cause? How can how I, I, I don't understand the mindset of why we have to be hateful towards one group to show solidarity with another. That There should be no place for dialogue like that in this country. Well, you know, it's very political these days, and sadly, it has become a weaponization in our politics. It's a great way to wedge your, your opponent, but in doing so, we are normalizing a lot of this. I mean, you've seen the polling both in the United States and, and in Canada, where uh, the large portions of our younger generations, they don't even have a clue about the Holocaust because it's been normalized um, you know, that it's just something that was made up. I mean, that that should be uh, quite alarming. The other thing is Hamilton's got a fairly large Jewish community, and I'm not sure what the reaction has been, uh, you know, from them. But, you know, when you when you bring this up to someone like Marit Stiles, who's a new leader, and this should be seen, I think, as a test of her leadership, um, you know, was there any understanding uh, to why this might be a concern of letting this, um, you know, the, the candidate run? Because she, she probably will win. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is considered a safe seat. Um, we raise this issue as a matter of principle. Um, uh, that's why we've raised it. Um, we're not aware, again, we're not aware of the thinking of the NDP. Um, we're not aware, um, you know, of any further commentary um, from his JAMA. Um, uh, but, um, you know, you should be there to represent all your constituents. We've had very, very positive feedback mm-hmm. um, to our com- our public commentary from, from members of the uh, Hamilton Jewish community. And, um, you know, the, the, everybody's, uh, you know, should be concerned about issues like this. We don't want to see further divisions, further polarization of our society. And by pushing divisive movements like that, um, uh, it's just going to continue the polarization. And, and both the right and the left mm-hmm. of the political spectrum 
have to be aware of this and um, and shouldn't be shouldn't be pushing for the more uh, for the polarization. Well, there is a very big assumption that this is a far right problem. I kind of point out to people, no, 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 no. It is very much on the left and the right, and that's the concern is that it's become so normalized. I mean, if you go online right now. Uh, a lot of liberals are pushing the logo of the conservative uh, logo and they're putting a swastika right in the middle of it. And I'm like, could do, must we normalize this? I mean, it's just thrown around. Um, but it is a left and right thing. It, it absolutely is. And I, I personally and, and organizationally, the neighbors has a big problem mm-hmm. with both the left and the right, especially around swastikas, yeah. Nazism. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, Ms. Jam was talking about the police as Nazis. The Nazis... Let's remember what the Nazis did. And it wasn't just the Holocaust, right? Like, imagine if the Nazis had won. They were, you know, murdering, picking on all the, the gay community, Jews, blacks, all sorts, anyone that was different. Nazis were Nazis. And so once you start calling your political uh, rivals yeah. Nazis, yeah. You, you, the, the term loses all meaning. And, um, and that would be a big big problem for Canada if we forgot, because we stood and fought against the Nazis as a country. Yeah, well, I, I, I would say our history is a little checkered on that. Uh, I'm not sure uh, we can take pride in our, that. Our, but our, mili- yeah. our military. Yeah, yeah for sure. Nonetheless, stay tuned and uh, we'll, we'll continue talking about it. Michael, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Alex. That's uh, Michael Moistian uh, with the B'nai B'rith um, of Canada. So again, for me, it's just, let's not be so selective in our outrage. It's either okay or it's not. But it is not just a one-sided problem. talk about something we talk about a lot on this show and the question, you know, if you do the crime, are you ever going to do the time in this country for that crime? And it's very questionable these days, you know, following a number of rulings at our country's top court, which has uh, been making a lot of its rulings based on what's best for the accused and not society at large. And we, you know, we talk about stack sentencing where, you know, we've got, you know, nine judges agreeing that mass killer Alexander Bissonnette must have hope. Which then, Mark Smitch and Dylan Muller, they must have hope. I mean, they killed three people, but they must have hope. Never mind what the people who are destroyed by it have to go through. And so they can get their sentences reduced. And before that, it was a ruling, you know, striking down mandatory minimum sentences. And of course, it was based on the thinking that, you know, it's unfair. How could we give someone a mandatory minimum sentence? We, have, we must talk about these, talk about their feelings. They're too harsh. And um, we've got a lot of lawyers who use these kind of circumstances, hypothetical, uh, reasonable hypotheticals, where they'll say, well, my client could lose their job or never have a, a career down the line if we give them five years or whatever. They, like, they come up with these scenarios that aren't true, but, but could maybe happen or maybe not, but whatever, then we have to make rulings about that. And um, as my next guest points out, the upper court is now routinely going around those who we elect to make the laws and kind of coming up with their own reasons as to why the law should not impact the accused. Peter McKay is a lawyer, former conservative federal minister of justice, foreign affairs, national defense. You have a long title, Peter, so I have to shorten it. So that's all I'm giving you. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Alex. And uh, listening to your opening kind of 
Makes my blood boil a mm-hmm. little bit, as I'm sure it does for a lot of your listeners. It's uh, it's troubling, to say the least, especially when we see daily stories of an uptick in crime and violence, whether it's on public transit or in our communities. And, uh, you know, coming back to this, this issue of, of what is a mandatory minimum penalty, well, it's a floor. It's not a ceiling. It's, it's a minimum amount of incarceration that a person should face upon conviction. And that's an important point to remember. This is after a full trial and, and opportunity to test the evidence and, uh, and to hear from all of the witnesses. But we're now talking about somebody who's been convicted. And, and in these cases of a violent criminal offense or an offense using a weapon, a minimum sentence is appropriate. And Alex, this isn't a partisan issue. We've had mandatory minimum penalties in the criminal code as long as we've had the criminal code going back to the 1800s. So this isn't a conservative liberal NDP issue. This is about public safety and proportionate sentencing that reflects the public's response to violence. Yeah. I mean, it's often associated with Harper because he had a number of, um, of these. And of course, they've been struck down you know, bit by bit over the last five or six years wrongly. Um, you know, these are these are sentences for violent criminals. It's not like you're handing out a mandatory minimum for someone charged with mischief because they, um, you know, ran over a cat. These are for people who commit heinous crimes, and we're just asking that they serve at the least a set amount of time, and that apparently to our upper courts is too much, you know. Um, and, and it is frustrating. We get a lot of calls. I talk about this a lot from the days when I covered court to, to what we see now. It's, it doesn't even seem like the same system where the scales of justice are no longer weighted in balance to preserve the integrity of community safety while preserving the fairness of a, of a you know, fair trial for the accused. It's just all weighted in, in, in the benefit of the accused. Well, that's right. And uh, it, it shakes public confidence. It shakes public willingness to participate in the justice system. It's harder and harder to impanel a jury. Uh, Victims increasingly say, given the opportunity, I wouldn't do that again because of the experience or feeling re-victimized. And you pointed out that it was a conservative government that brought in many mandatory minimum penalties. But these penalties, as I said, Mm. they've been around a long time. We also brought in, in 2015, the Victims' Bill of Rights. I suspect very few of your listeners yeah. and, and sadly few people in the courts talk about the Victims' Bill of Rights because, mm-hmm. again, that was intended to shift at least a little bit back to the center of mm-hmm. not being entirely focused on the rights of the accused or the convicted, but also saying, you know, the victim has a say, has a voice, has rights within our system as well. And all of this trend, which appears to be still gaining momentum, coming from the courts is is having a very detrimental impact in my view on on public safety and on public confidence in our justice system. Yeah, look, I think a lot of defense lawyers would disagree with me, but I think we're seeing it playing out in big cities where everything now kind of gets, we're into a restorative justice. We don't have the same criminal justice system where everyone's got to give, be given either the benefit of the doubt or we have to look to the background and, you know, they get second, third, fourth chances, you know, um, and this has been happening under this particular government because they do believe that people should uh, not be in jail. And I don't think we want everyone in jail, uh, Peter, but we certainly no, want some people in jail. I mean, I don't care if Della Millard or Mark Smith ever gets out of jail or Alexander Bissonnette. I mean, these are people who should never have freedom because they gave up that right for it when they decided to be uh, criminals. 
Um, and having said that, so now, I mean, you do point out that you see this as kind of activist um, uh, rulings, um, and it's it's fairly new. Because I don't remember this happening before, where you had judges really pushing, you know, I think they need to have some discretion for sure, but this much of a pushback. Well, it, it is troubling. And as you mentioned, there, there are a number of elements to this. The, the, the mandatory minimum penalties is one aspect of it. The, the restorative justice uh, reference that you made, I mean, restorative justice was intended in its origins to put the victim back in the place they would be had the crime not been committed. It's been distorted now mm. to mean, well, we can't be too hard on the offender. We can't, we can't somehow go uh, too far into these areas of general and specific deterrence and denouncing the crime itself. We're talking about the worst of the worst in, mm. in most instances here where there has been multiple murders, multiple sexual assaults. Uh, in some cases, police officers killed, which is supposed to be at the highest level of deterrence when, when we see officers themselves in harm's way. And there needs to be a message sent. That's what our criminal justice system does in part. It says we stand between you and violent offenders. And when that's being whittled away, as, as I would suggest we've seen in some of these cases, it, it, it ripples right across the entire justice system. And it's not always fairly reported. That's why I'm really appreciative that you're bringing attention to this. This isn't about uh, shoplifting or misdemeanors or, or minor summary offenses, as they're known in our system. This is about that blazing red line mm -hmm. between those who break into someone's home with a firearm, who use weapons in the commission of an offense, who commit acts of violence causing bodily harm. This is where mandatory minimum penalties were put in place as a floor, as to, to say we do not go below this type of sentence. If you touch a child for a sexual purpose, you're going to jail. Yeah. And we will work our way up from what that jail sentence will be. Giving somebody a, you know, a probationary period to spend their, their supposed penalty at home watching television, that is not really viewed by the public as a proper deterrent. It certainly isn't felt that by the offender. They, they think, well, okay, uh, there's almost a license to commit crime here. If, if that's the response from our justice system, a light tap on the wrist. Yeah. Well, there has to be a deterrent. Um, um, but the other thing is, you know, we're seeing this government now kind of flip backwards on its uh, bail. They made that easier, too. So now we have to reform that because we've got too many, um, you know, violent criminals getting out. So there's that. But, you know, when the hope of the accused, I mean, if, if a guy like Alexander Bissonnette, if it's a cruel you know, to give him 150 years because he killed six Muslims at prayer or and tried to kill a whole bunch more. Uh, when his hope or that of any killer in this country is put before that of the, the victims, uh, we've got a real problem here. And one of the things I think you, you point out aptly is this issue of reasonable, reasonable hypothetical, which the, which the courts uh, just ruled on that it's okay to continue using it. But, you know, we've got these made-up scenarios um, of things that could happen where we're making these weighted decisions on, this is not something that other countries do. No, it isn't. Uh, and other Commonwealth countries, so countries with, with comparable justice systems. So there was a string of cases mm. that happened within the last five, seven years. Nur, Smith, um, Goltz was one of the cases, Morrissey. These cases all allowed the judge to use this type of avatar accused so a made-up set of facts a fantasy fact 
not what's before the court, not what the individual themselves may be charged with or what the, the circumstances were that led them to be before the court. I mean, the average Canadian hearing this should be outraged. You know, in what world do we go into this sort of scenario uh, of an academic exercise examining constitutional rights for an individual that doesn't exist yeah. and then and then apply it superficially to the case before the court? It's it's ludicrous, quite frankly. And we are seeing some judges now take that view. But it's it's all drummed out when the, the Supreme Court is saying this is the way we're going to proceed. And it's acceptable yeah. to use a reasonable hypothetical. In my opinion, that's unreasonable. I think, uh, yeah, most people think like that. But again, they are drowned out. I want to flip over because I'm going to run out of time, Peter. But I, I mean, you've got the experience and certainly um, your background in um, in law and uh, in Ottawa should uh, give you a perspective on this. But uh, the rapporteur, I don't know when we're going to hear who this person is. If I never heard the, hear that word again, uh, it'll be too soon. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, we've got the chief of staff to the prime minister, Katie Telford, uh, will not testify. The uh, liberals are filibustering that. They are spent 24 hours not letting her testify. The prime minister does not want to call an inquiry. Um, maybe the opposition parties can go around that next week. But where are you on this? Uh, you know, can he rag the puck on this and make it go away? Or you see this sticking around? Well, he's certainly going to try. And I'm not in the thick of it anymore, uh, Alex, as you know. But mm-hmm. looking at this from afar, it seems the uh, the complete opposite of transparency and accountability to be either avoiding having people testify who have obvious knowledge of what the prime minister and his office were briefed on when it came to foreign interference. Secondly, using a rapporteur <laughs> handpicked by the uh, the prime minister's office or the prime minister himself, again, doesn't really lead you to have a great deal of confidence about what that, uh, that rapporteur is going to tell us. You know, a judicial inquiry, a public inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry that has actual ability to call witnesses is the only way you're going to get to the truth of the matter. And this is a serious matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, my goodness, foreign interference in our elections shakes the very foundations of our democracy, as does having foreign countries operating police stations yeah. used to intimidate Canadian citizens. I mean, how on earth could this happen? If you had said this a few years ago, nobody would have believed you. Surely this couldn't happen in Canada. And yet here we are. Yeah. Well, if only they had been reading Sam Cooper for all that time, because uh, he and Terry Glavin have been warning uh, for, for a number of years. So here we are. Stay tuned is all I can say. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Pleasure speaking to you, Alex. All the best. You as well. That's Peter McKay. And if you want to read his piece, it is in the Toronto Sun, but it's, uh, it, it is, it's true. And I hear from you, you know. People are angry. No one's asking for the death penalty. Well, some, some of you are asking for the death penalty, but, it's, but uh, there's got to be balance. There's got to be balance, and there is not right now. Let us talk about something, well... We talk about a lot. It's the Gardner. The Gardner Expressway, is that uh, about to become a big focal point in the upcoming by-election? Well, if a coalition called the Gardner East Transparency has its way, it will be the issue. And this is a group made up of residents, associations, environmental groups, cyclist groups, those kinds of things. They want to know the updated costs to rebuild the uh, 1.7 kilometer 
eastern portion of the gardener because they don't think it's worth the costs and they want it all brought up back for debate. Uh, this is a group that has pushed to tear down the gardener. They want housing built on this waterland park. But we're talking about a project that we have spent years and hundreds of millions of dollars on already. This was a John Tory, like he insisted we have to do this. We got another 500 million signed in contracts uh, for when the big construction starts in 2026. So here we are in Toronto, remember uh, Transit City? Like it was like a 20 year ordeal that never got done, but uh, typical Toronto where we start these big infrastructure projects and then halfway around, we're talking about maybe putting it on hold and uh, you know, even councillors like Josh Matlow you know, who is uh, thinking about running for mayor, says, well, we should look at this. Oh, should we? Let us ask. Maddie Simiataki is uh, joining us, director of the Infrastructure Institute, professor of geography and planning at the University of Toronto. Hello, Maddie. Hi, how you doing? Well, I'll tell you what I don't want to be talking about in this election is that tearing down the uh, gardener. So maybe if Josh Matlow runs, maybe this will be his ballywick. But I, do we need to talk about stopping this work? Would that make any sense to you? This is so Toronto. so Toronto. We have we have these litmus test type of projects. And you mentioned Transit City, and there was the St. Clair LRT. Mm-hmm. Then there was the Scarborough Subway, which we went back and forth on, whether it should be LRT or Subway. And now it's the Gardener. And we seem in this region just to pick these projects. Yeah. Uh, and, they, and they become a litmus test for uh, so many different issues uh, about environment, about housing, uh, about the role of the car in our society, and really about our priorities. And they end up taking up so much of the oxygen, and in in many cases, rightly so. Uh, But they really take on this outsized role, and they tend to bigfoot many of the other important discussions as we keep relitigating these decisions over and over and over again. And it costs time and money. Well, it does. But like, why do we have a housing crisis? Why do we have a transit crisis? Why do we have all these crises? It's because we never actually get them built. Like we are just so unserious about this kind of stuff. And so, you know, the risk becomes like, are we going to delay this again with the justification that this is a massive, massive investment, you know, problem at a time when we just don't have any money. The flip side of this, Maddie, is that uh, we can't close down this as much as I hate the gardener. You can't close that thing down because there's no alternative. So in this case, I actually think a review is warranted to at least look at the costs again to understand where the costs are. I mean, we know, and you and I have talked before, that the costs of construction are skyrocketing. Sure. Uh, and it does warrant a relook uh, at at least the cost to really so everyone is on the same page about where we're at and what the state of play is uh, on this project. This project, even in 2021, was meant to be uh, valued at two billion dollars for the entire gardener rehabilitation uh, between 2021 and 2030, and that's 38 percent of the entire total transportation budget. So uh, this is a significant amount of money, and I think at least getting a handle on where it's at now with mm-hmm. the current costing is worthwhile and then we can in an election this is the time to debate these points and then we go forward yeah look uh, i mean this is one of those things that if anyone had a vision all those years ago they wouldn't have put it where it is because it's like right in front of the water it's a massive prime piece of real estate maybe they could have reinvented a way of getting it done but it is what it is we're stuck with it and uh, i just look at this and go after all this money of patching this thing um, you know, if you if you drive down in this area, and I just avoid it like the plague now, you can sit there in traffic for like half an hour. It, it's just so crazy. 
Um, and so I'm not really sure what what the uh, what what would be the half like what would be a workable solution if they decide all of a sudden not to go ahead with this. So I think part of the point is that that portion that southeastern portion of the Gardner actually has fairly low traffic volumes. And well, I think is that because they close the ramp at the end uh, going on to uh, if you were heading to the beaches? Is that why? Have people just, it, actually, yeah. it actually had low traffic volumes yeah. before that. And it's interesting that the backup actually happens in town sure. rather than on that portion. And so uh, the theory is that you can bring it down to the ground, build a boulevard in that area, open up a lot more land that has real economic value and social and environmental value. So stop, because uh, I don't want to get lost on the highway, because it is confusing. So there's a portion that goes off to the left of the DVP. You would keep that yeah. and then get rid of that ramp and, and, and chop that part down? Because that ramp's closed. That's right. So the the part that went over um, the Don River and into the east end, that's already been taken down. Uh, You would have a ramp that comes down from the Don Valley Parkway, comes down to surface level onto a boulevard, uh, and then goes back up at Jarvis. I think that's uh, the the alternative uh, plan that had been debated all those years ago. And Uh what it it does is it opens up a lot more land that could be redeveloped that has a huge economic uh, and social value if we can open up uh, that property for for housing. If it can be done without completely uh, going back and undoing what we've already done, and saving us hundreds of millions of dollars. Because again, we don't know where the costs are going on this thing. It is a massive expense. Um, You know, uh, maybe it can be done, but it's just, I think even the conversation about you turning on this thing is just going to make people's heads explode. I think you're right. And that's that's the hard part about this, that going back on it and apparently $500 million or so has already been committed. Yeah. So that's so that's significant. We're already behind uh, with that. So just where where this goes now and is is really just a is is a political debate, and it's really this just this litmus test issue of where people stand, uh, and 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 that's how it's being presented. It's kind of become uh, this this frequent wedge, and I think having mm-hmm. some evidence and some data to insert into this conversation now is important, especially as we're going into an election where this will be a campaign issue. I think having facts that everyone can agree on, or at least that can be presented and then debated, uh, I think is really important here. Well, Gil Penelos and a couple of the other candidates will certainly, because you wanted to do this, so we'll uh, see where the debate goes. Maddie, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Nice being with you. Absolutely. Maddie Simiatikia joining us here. Uh, look, we have a real leadership vacuum right now, thanks to John Tory, um, you know, as he's gone. This was his baby. He pushed for this. And so it looks like we're going to be heading into yet another debate on it. And uh, I guess we'll wait and see, but it's just, a, uh, again, Uh, Maddie says, you know, it's political. Yeah, everything's political. Just get it done, come up with a plan, uh, see what we can do, but um, a debate back in the headlines that we thought we were finished with. I thank you for listening. Wish you a great day. I thank Corey Manuel and Miss Heather Purden for uh, getting this beast to air. And uh, I will be back here tomorrow. Thank you so much. I'm Alex Pearson here on 640 Toronto.